Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. I'm Griffin Barris, a senior at Elon University and a member of the AEI Executive Council Program. For today's episode, I'm excited to share an interview with AEI's Dr. Corey Shackey on some of the most significant foreign policy challenges facing the Biden administration. Before getting started, I want to let you know that the AEI Executive Council Program gives current undergraduates the opportunity to engage with AEI scholars through conversations like this one and to improve the quality and diversity of public policy dialogue on college campuses. If you want to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses across the country, just check out the link in the show notes. And make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Campus Exchange and to give us a rating to help others find the podcast. With that, here's my conversation with Dr. Corey Shackey. So going back to China, that's been the big ticket issue, that sort of Thucydides trap. I might have mispronounced that. I don't speak Greek very well. Nope, you got it exactly right. Fantastic. So going back to the the lens of Beijing, how has the CCP, the Communist Chinese Communist Party, responded to the election of President Biden? And going off that relationship, how does President Biden plan on addressing issues such as Taiwan, North Korea, and other international issues where China and the U.S. kind of meet head to head? Yeah, it's a great question, Griffin. So about a year ago, the Chinese government, the Chinese foreign ministry started something that they call wolf warrior diplomacy, which is like really aggressive, in-your-face attacks on the United States, really trying to suggest that American capitalism is corrupt and only helps the rich and that American society is so unjust that Black Americans won't tolerate it anymore, and that all of the criticisms of American society, all of which have some truth to them, but I would simply point out that American entrepreneurs aren't moving to Beijing, and Black Americans don't think China is any less racist than the United States is. And the advantage that free societies have is that our disputes occur in public as part of us reaching a new and different social compact about how we choose to govern ourselves. And the people of China do not have that luxury. The Chinese Communist Party's theory of success is that they promise that Chinese will grow more prosperous in return for having no political rights. But what the philosopher Hegel, right, one of the founding philosophers of the West, taught us is that as people grow more prosperous, they become more demanding political consumers. And that's why the wealthiest countries in the world, the most dynamic economies, are the free countries, right? Because the innovation that it takes the willingness to fail in order to succeed, banks that'll loan you money even after you've lost it, all of those attributes of experimentation and opportunity that are the core of free societies 
are unavailable in China, right? Jack Ma, a brilliant Chinese entrepreneur, was forced to disgorge his companies because he was critical of the Chinese government. The ant organization that is doing so much interesting experimentation is now being shackled by the Chinese government. The work of a number of important scholars, including AEI's Michael Beckley, suggests that the Chinese economy has already stalled and that we may not have the problem of a stampeding successful China, but we may be looking at the problems of a stalling and failing China. And they may be even more severe, especially given what we see in Hong Kong and what they are threatening for Taiwan. Interesting. And going off of another similar wolf warrior diplomat, as you may have said, Russia has proved to be an extremely tactful adversary to the United States uh, in the fields of foreign policy, specifically relating to Crimea and the Caucasus and Syria, and then the meddling in the 2016 presidential election. So how does President Biden plan on countering President Putin? And what are some of the pros and cons of their outlined strategy so far? So I thought it was pretty shocking that President Biden flat out called President Putin a murderer. Given that we weren't willing to call the crown prince of Saudi Arabia a murderer, that we were willing to call Vladimir Putin one, when we have a lot of great power interests that we're going to want Russia and help on. So I think the downside is that by calling Vladimir Putin what he actually is, that that will make cooperating with Russia more difficult, but it will bring clarity to American policy towards Russia that I think is overdue. And I think the advantages, I assess Russia as very aggressive in the last 10 years, right? Not just the invasion of Crimea and the election interference, both in 2016 and in 2020, but the move into Syria, the move into Libya, the use of Wagner Corporation mercenaries. What Russia has done brilliantly is identify where there are gaps between what the U.S. is saying we're going to do and what we're really doing. That's what they did so effectively in Syria. That's what they did so effectively in election interference, right? When we weren't willing to protect ourselves. But the cost of Russia doing those things, and not just for the United States, but for European countries and beyond, Russia has proven that Vladimir Putin's a murderer and that You know, I saw an interesting poll from the Levada Institute, the only unconstrained polling, public polling service in Russia, that 10 years ago, 56% of Russians considered themselves European, and now only 26% do. Mm. And I bet even fewer Europeans consider Russia European. So what Putin has done is make Russia cut adrift from Europe. And that's not likely to be a successful economic strategy. And it's probably not likely to be a successful political strategy either. 
Interesting. You're just another one of the trends in our increasingly multipolar world, as I've heard it referred to as many times. Going to a different poll, I guess. Iran in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action has been a hot ticket issue ever since it was signed in 2015. We saw the Trump administration take a pretty maximum pressure stance. So how do we see the Biden administration potentially approaching Iran? Will Iran even be willing to come to the table after the past four years of sort of flip-flopping diplomacy from the United States? Oh, that's such a good way to pose the question. I think it's going to be very hard to get back to the Iranian nuclear weapons agreement for a couple of reasons. First, because the Iranians are now in violation of it as well. And so the Europeans aren't supporting Iran's position. I thought that was such a mistake. Iran had played it so smart to let the U.S. be the bad guy and them be in virtuous compliance. But when they broached that, that made it harder. It will be very hard for the United States to persuade the Iranians or actually many other potential international partners that the United States will stick with the deal from one administration to another. As of course, you know, though, Griffin, the one way to make sure that that happens is actually to make it a treaty and to get it ratified in the Senate. That's how presidents prevent that kind of seesawing in American foreign policy. Because in the American government, I think the most important thing for everybody to always remember, I know you guys know this, but I have to tell it to people who aren't Americans all the time. The American government was created by people who distrust government and believe the country works pretty well without it. And so to get anything done in the American government, you have to win the argument. You have to be able to persuade people that you have the right course of action. And there's just no substitute to doing that. So I think it's going to be hard. I also think what will make it harder is that the Trump administration didn't respond to Iranian attacks on Saudi Arabia, on the UAE, on other countries in the region. But what I think the genius of the Abraham Accords was is that the United States isn't the only country that could constrain Iranian behavior. And the potential for cooperation between the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Israel, and Egypt potentially, Jordan potentially, that would really put a noose around Iranian malign behavior. And the Abraham Accords are an important step forward in that regard. Interesting. And you mentioned our European allies and being this sort of awkward position on the JPOA. One of President Biden's rallying cries during his campaign was re-engagement with America's allies. But many NATO member states have expressed concern over the U.S.'s reliability as a defense partner, hasn't it to, quote, entrust their security in the opinion of 50,000 voters in Pennsylvania. So how does the Biden administration likely seek to attend to bridge this gap between our allies and ensure that the Article 5 of NATO would be respected in the event of any sort of belligerence and kind of promoting multilateralism going forward? Yeah. So here, I think the Biden administration deserves a fair amount of criticism for thinking that just because their manners are better and their language is less provocative, that people are going to trust them more when, in fact, their behavior needs to change. And it's not clear that the Biden administration will have any less exasperation at levels of European defense spending 
or at grandiose French claims of strategic autonomy or Germany playing footsies with the Russians over Nord Stream 2 or increasing authoritarianism by President Erdogan in Turkey or the backsliding of democracy by Poland and by Hungary or the British wanting everybody to follow them and banking on us to make that possible for them. So European allies, though, they're not newly tiresome and difficult to deal with. President Eisenhower also found them tiresome and difficult to deal with. In 1954, at the height of the Cold War, President Eisenhower chairs a National Security Council meeting in which he and his Secretary of State, who was just back from a NATO meeting, conclude that the idea of NATO has really run its course. Europeans are just never going to defend themselves, and we got to find a new approach. Right? Wow. So I think the, the bottom line is that I wish we could trade our European allies in for better, more reliable, more helpful allies. And since 1990, when I started doing alliance work, I have not been able to find those allies to trade them in for. And Europeans would absolutely trade the United States for an ally they could depend more reliably upon, if only they could find that ally. But as yet, nobody willing to defend them has stepped forward who's any more reliable than the United States is. Interesting. Yeah, it's always the the devil you know versus the devil you don't know, I guess. Exactly. Um, None of us have a better option. And so it's worth the work to try and work together. The values piece really matters in the transatlantic relationship. And we're about to see it come full blossom on the China portfolio, right? Because Volkswagen, one of Germany's most important companies, built a great big factory right outside the Uyghur internment camps in China. And Americans are talking about it as soon as the German public sees that a major German company is facilitating genocide. Germans are going to boycott Volkswagen. We're not even going to have to. So the values piece is a really important part of what continues to drive us and our closest friends together. Because we get tired of the Europeans telling us that we need to meet our own standards, and they get tired of us telling them. But it matters to our own domestic publics to meet our own standards. And that's what drives us together. Absolutely. That's an interesting development I hadn't heard about. So it'll be interesting to see how that's covered in the coming weeks and months. And our last question before we hand it over to the student question and answers, given all the issues we covered today, what, in your opinion, is the most critical foreign policy issue for the Biden administration to tackle in the short term, just for their first year, even first four years, and then sort of in the long term grand strategy for the US to maintain its level of influence and power in the world? Yeah. So I should say that I'm not particularly worried about America retaining its influence in the world because, you know, one of my favorite passages in Ulysses Grant's memoirs is when he's talking about his boss during the Civil War, Secretary of War Edmund Stanton. And Grant complains 
that he could see our weaknesses, but he could not see that our enemy was failing. And I think that's frequently an American strategic blind spot. We're so good at seeing all the many things we do badly, and we very often fail to reflect on how hard it is to get right the things the United States gets right and the the distribution, the checks and balances in American governance, the federal system that doesn't allow localities to be railroaded by the federal government, the way that our political compact is reinforced by immigrants to our country and the dynamism that they bring to our economy, the way that they remind all of us the truths we hold to be self-evident. Those are really difficult things to get right. Even chapter 11 bankruptcy, one of the best things in the United States, right? Your company can go bankrupt, but you don't lose your house or and banks will give you a loan again. Because, you know, it took 10,001 experiments with the light bulb before we had a light bulb out of Edison's factory. And so I'm not particularly worried. I think American hegemony is likely to go another couple hundred years before anybody else can limber themselves up to get right what we have right, provided we don't do too many stupid things. Um, (laughs) But it's also true that the fact that the American government is so porous, you know, 4,000 political appointees are coming into the government with the Biden administration, and 4,000 are coming out. And those people are going to go to think tanks like AEI and sharpshoot the Biden administration's policies all day. And the depth of the strategic community in the United States is so much more vibrant than in other countries that we actually make fewer big mistakes than most dominant powers. But that's a really long way of getting around to answering your question, which I promise I'm going to do right now. The thing I think most important for American power in the international order right now is us coming roaring out of the pandemic that rebuilding our economy, rebuilding a sense of social trust, having the government be able to effectively oversee vaccinations for us all, coming up with an international policy that makes vaccines available beyond the United States, celebrating the economic system that made all the experimentation of these vaccines possible, and capitalizing on that goodwill to persuade countries to do some of the hard power things we need to do together. I think that would be a huge, even more important than getting the China portfolio right. Because I think the Chinese are doing so many, making so many big mistakes that they're already activating the antibodies against their continued success. Mm, Excellent. So now we'll move on to some student questions that we've had coming in. Mary Thibodeau asks, she noted that you paused before calling the humanitarian issues against the Uyghur community in China a genocide. And she asks, what role do you believe the U.S. should take as humanitarian crises and genocides are increasing globally? Maybe answer some questions about our role 
responsibility to protect or a humanitarian intervention and the world police argument coming full circle? So I paused because I was trying to recall how to pronounce the province of China, Xinjiang, which I always mess up because I don't speak Chinese. I wasn't blanching at calling the Uyghur internment genocide. And I don't think the United States should blanch at it either, just as I don't believe we should blanch at calling Vladimir Putin a murderer or calling the crown prince of Saudi Arabia a murderer. I think America's moral voice is hugely important in the world. And when our adversaries try and counter, as the Chinese government just did today, said the United States committed genocide against Native Americans and you, you were a slaveholding country. The difference is America doesn't try to deny either of those things, right? We are having a big, loud, continuing conversation about what the right way to acknowledge our sins and redress them is. And I would welcome China or other countries who are committing current genocides to hold themselves to the same standard. Because the fact that we have failed historically and even in our current moment to fully live up to our ideology doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying and doesn't mean we should expect others to try and meet the same standard we're trying to meet. So I would love to see us be a clarion voice. I would love to see us protect other clarion voices. For example, the Chinese have two political hostages, Canadian citizens working for NGOs that are trying to hold the Chinese government accountable. And they're political prisoners right now. So I think we should also be speaking out on all of those cases. The Iranian government takes hostages for similar purposes. We ought always to stand with people brave enough to try and advance the truths we hold to be self-evident. Similarly, on the topic of China, Cameron Bircher asks, how can we confidently speculate that China's position as an industrial power is worsening, given the Belt and Road Initiative investments in Pakistan, in East Africa, amongst other places? That is a fantastic question. I would encourage you to read my colleague Michael Beckley's work. He has an article out in the Journal of Accountants or something, like an odd place, but it's the most succinct statement of the research he did looking into the upstream drivers of China's economic success. So, arable land, water use, the amount of investment it takes to produce GDP growth. And those indicators all suggest that China's economy started stagnating around eight years ago. And they have been playing games with statistics and trying to cover that by increasing government investment. The other great part of Cameron's question is about the Belt and Road Initiative. So, China is now the world's largest lender because of the loans they have made for the Belt and Road Initiative projects. Many of those loans were very questionable even before the global economic slowdown brought by the pandemic. 
I mean, there's a reason the INF and the World Bank wouldn't build the Hamanbota port in Sri Lanka or those projects in Pakistan, because they did not believe they would ever become economically sustainable. And now China's left hanging on to a whole bunch of those. And we'll have to face the question, do I permit these countries to default, which will be a huge blow to the Chinese economy and could create social unrest because it's the Chinese people's money they're spending? Do they try and nationalize those assets that they're building? In which case, those countries are likely to turn to India, the United States, and others for protection. And it's hard to see how that's in China's interests. Or do they try and fudge by stretching out the loans forever and ever and ever, in which case they're just delaying the inevitable? So I think China's actually in a pretty big bind right now, partly for reasons of their own making and partly because events just didn't cooperate with their long-term plan. You know, for those of you who are interested in military strategy, there's a great book written by Sir Lawrence Friedman, A History of Strategy. And it opens with a quote from the boxer Mike Tyson, which Laurie thinks is the most, Sir Lawrence Friedman thinks is the most succinct statement of good strategy, which is everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Strategy is what you do once you've gotten punched in the face. Interesting. Good perspective. Pivoting a little bit to the a more global lens, Cole Carney is asking if you could comment on what the US's role in the United Nations Security Council and probably intergovernmental organizations more broadly are going to look like during the Biden administration and amid the challenges of populism and democratic backsliding. You know, the criticisms that the Trump administration made of international institutions are all true, right? They're mostly not helpful. It requires an enormous amount of American heft to get anything done. The business of the Saudis on the UN Human Rights Council and the Chinese is such an affront. So their analysis is correct, but their policy prescriptions are terrible. Because those things will continue to happen whether or not the United States participates. The best way to counter it is the model UN answer, which is get in there, show that we're good at this, persuade people we've got a better answer than that, and help make them brave enough to stand shoulder to shoulder with us. Because that's the only way you fix that problem, not by complaining that math class is hard. Math class has always been hard. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. And then this may be our last question. We'll see how, how long the answer takes because it could be a long one. From Jacob Stoken, he says, Emma Ashford of the Atlantic Council has spoken at length about how policymakers should seek to understand the US-China relationship under a different lens than great power competition. Do you believe that there is weight to this argument? And if so, what kind of lens would you use to get a different perspective on the relationship? So I agree with Emma's concern that we're slouching into lazy thinking about China. But I disagree with almost everything else she says, because, for example, she doesn't think ideology should play a major role in how we engage or counter China. 
And I think that's not only foreclosing a great advantage the United States has, but I think as a practical matter, it's impossible to do. Americans care about the world because we care about our values advancing, because we actually think our values are universal, right? We believe that people have rights and they loan them in limited ways to governments for consensual purposes, and that the world is safest when populated by states so governed. And so in dealing with China, it's true that thinking, you know, this is another Soviet Union, it's another Cold War. There are important differences, not least that our economies are much more intertwined. But that just argues for good, careful, creative, strategic thinking. Like, where do we need to protect our economy? And where can we take advantage of China's economy? Not to foreclose it wholesale, which would be taking a meat axe to something a scalpel could achieve for us. I guess China is the big topic, rightfully so. Our last question is, what do you believe the Biden administration will do or should do regarding the South China Sea and the lawfare and borderline warfare that's been going on in the region the past decade or so? Yeah, I think it's right to drive up the cost to China for their aggression in the South China Sea. Their attempt to intrude on the territorial waters of the fishing rights of other countries, their building of artificial islands that Xi Jinping promised President Obama in the Rose Garden they would not turn into military bases, and they've turned them all into military bases. So I think we're right to point out that those will be the first targets of any military conflict between China and the United States. I also think we are doing a great job of not just having the United States do that enforcement, but doing it holding hands with all of our allies. Moreover, encouraging important initiatives like the government of Japan, who is cascading Coast Guard ships and training to Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, the government of Australia, which is helping Pacific Island nations to patrol their territorial waters. We need to do all of those things, not only because it shares the burden, but it also reminds China that this isn't a US-China problem. This is a China versus the world problem. Absolutely. And on that note, that wraps up our discussion for today. Corey, thank you so much for taking time out of your afternoon to speak with us. It was a super engaging and robust conversation. We're so glad it to have It was a you. real pleasure, Griffin. Thank you for organizing it. I appreciate your leadership. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campus Exchange, make sure to give us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. Also, if you want to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit aei.org or click on the link in the show notes. Lastly, make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about upcoming events for students.